Welcome to the Assurance Show. This podcast is for internal auditors and performance auditors. We discuss risk and data-focused ideas that are relevant to assurance professionals. Your hosts are Connor McGarity and Yusuf Mullah. Hi, Connor. Hi, Yusuf. How are you? Good, thanks. And yourself? Not too bad. Thank you. So the discussion today is going to be about exploring open access to data used within internal audit and performance audit teams with specific focus on eight exceptions that may necessitate a level of restriction. In general, access should be open as much as possible as explained in a previous episode, but there are eight specific exceptions that we need to consider in determining open access. Can we get a bit more specific there? Can you talk about an internal audit where it was a requirement to keep the data set closed to particular internal audit team members as opposed to opening it up more broadly. If we take an example of a health data set, so where we're dealing with medical-related data for individuals, uh, then typically you... And this is not now... This is not completely keeping the data set separate. This is about particular fields within the data. Personally identifiable information generally needs to be kept private, but when you get into health data, and in particular when you get into health claims data, that can be very sensitive. And so what you want to do is is the, the, the broader data. So if you think about looking at, for example, uh, health claims type audits, um, you'll have a range of data. You'll have uh, personal data. You'll have, um, so that's about the individual. Um, you'll have data about premiums that have been um, that have been earned to make sure that premiums are actually paid before a claim. You'll have the actual claims data, um, and then you might have some reference data. The reference data is fine. The personal data, to an extent, depending on what's in there. Premiums data is usually okay. Uh, it's when you get to um, the actual claims data that you need to keep some of some of the claim detail sensitive. Just to jump in there, when you say reference data, what are you talking about there? So reference data would be the data that would be common across the data set, regardless of the types of claims that are that are captured. For example, within claims, you may have particular claims, line items that that have descriptions. And so in your claims data, you may not put that in. So you may not actually put the descriptions in. You may not have the, the, the actual, what you would call lookup data within that table. So you keep that separate, but that's fairly generic. So you'll say, you know, claim AT is of type physiotherapy or claim AB is of type clinical nursing or whatever, right? There's, there's different things that, that you'd actually put in there. So that's the that's the generic generic reference data that you use. Cool. What are the problems with, with, with opening data up? And I know we've been talking about internal audits. Maybe let's switch a little bit to performance audit. Um, what, are the, what are the challenges that, that, that people usually have with, um, with sharing data in the performance audit sphere, that is? So if we, if we think about performance audits, um, and a lot of internal audits are actually performance audits, looking at economy, efficiency, and effectiveness of things, um, probably the most um, sensitive data in that respect would be the efficiency data. So how well are you doing things with the least amount of resources? And why that's sensitive is because quite often that can demonstrate that there's opportunity to improve how you do things and make them work better with the current resources. So why is that challenging in terms of sharing resources? It's basically because nobody wants to have their performance shared with other people. So this is in the public sector we're talking about? Yeah, mostly, primarily. And what sort of performance do people want to keep to themselves? Um, I don't know that they want to keep it to themselves. I think it's because things are funded from the public purse, for example, it's 
not always beneficial for that stuff to be made, to make it into the public domain. Now, you might say, Yusuf, well, we're the taxpayers. Of course, it's important for that stuff to be transparent. And, and I would totally agree with you. I'm thinking more of now of the political domain in that it's not appetizing sometimes for politicians who look after certain portfolios to have performance information in the public domain that may suggest that their portfolio is not performing as it should be. I've got a list of eight exceptions. We can call this a ninth exception thrown in if we like. So let's go through those eight and see if if any of them resonate and if any of them actually do overlap with with the matter that you just brought up. Sure. So the first one is around cross-border concerns. So this is where we have audit functions with mul- within multinational organizations. So you know, you've got, you've got an audit function in, I don't know, the UK and an audit function in the US and another audit function uh, maybe somewhere in the East. And so if you, if you have that situation, you may have that data can't move between those, between those jurisdictions. The other cross-border concern that you may have is where audit work is outsourced to offshore processing centers. And that's been happening more and more probably over the last 20 years, somewhere late in the 90s, early 2000s is when that started happening. In the last 10 years, it's been accelerating. And actually, in fact, some of that, accel- some of that um, has been shifting back to the original processing centers. But that's, that's, a, that's a potential risk where the data is sensitive and cross-border transfer is a real risk. I think that outsourcing um, of the internal audit function is potentially a, a topic for the future that maybe we could dig into in a bit more detail. Sure, sure. That makes sense. Yeah, so cross-border concerns is the first one. So if you do have some cross-border concerns, the data is sensitive um, and cross-border transfer is a real risk. So not just something that you throw on to decide to close access, but it's a real risk. Then there's rationale for closing access up. The next one is where the organization has a very strict data governance regime and maybe this one ties in a little bit to the thinking around political expectations. So there's a very strict data governance regime in place across the organization more broadly. The audit team may decide to follow that, and that's to align with overall organizational thinking. And some of the, some some organization some functions do do that, um, and they do it legitimately. But the thing to be careful with this is that it may limit your ability to provide a strong, independent function. So. Can I put you on the spot here, Yusuf, and ask you a question? Do you see any particular industries or sector types that have an overly restrictive data governance regime in their internal audit teams as opposed to others? It's a very broad question, I know. Certain public sector entity types, defense, the tax office, revenue offices will have very strong data governance regimes. Public sector organization that deals with health, and in fact, any private sector organization that deals with health, Anybody that deals with processing of credit card data, large retailers, but that would purely be in relation to PCI DSS. Um, And then obviously financial services firms. So many financial services firms have very strict data governance regimes in place. And in particular, what we see is not necessarily retail banking or retail insurance, but um, where you have high net worth individuals, so wealth management that's where you'll have very strict data governance practices in place. There may be a few others, but if I think about that, I'll, I'll come back. So back to that. So independence. So if you follow the data governance regime of the organization strictly, does that impair your independence? I don't think I understand the question. How would it impair independence? So if the reason you are making a decision around sharing data within your team 
is that the organization has a very strong data governance regime and you want to follow it, does that mean that you are following a regime, following a process, following a governance expectation to the detriment of the level of independence you're able to provide? To be honest, I've never contemplated that previously. Uh, Shooting from the hip, I would say the answer is possibly. At the risk of talking in vagaries, I would suspect that any internal audit team that's using data or performance audit team would have to operate within the organizational organization's data framework. As to whether or not that impairs independence, I'm not sure. If a team was doing something that either wasn't spoken about in the data governance regime or potentially went contrary to that, I would suspect that that would have the reason and rationale would have to be very well documented. Yeah, so so my, my view on it is that if you are purely restricting access across the team in order to comply with the organizational data governance framework, um, then there may be a threat to independence. And that is if that, and that is in particular, if that restriction of access prevents you from doing a better job overall, mm. so prevents you from, you know, linking linking matters up between different subject areas um, appropriately. But is that an independence thing or is that an ability to perform your function thing? Well, if you if your ability to perform your function is being degraded by your need to follow a particular framework that the organization has set, then your independence is impaired. I think I've got a contrary view to that because to me, independence is about not having, being disassociated from having an interest in what you're reviewing. Being independent means that you are not subject to restrictions that others are subject to and that you can go into areas that others won't be able to go into so that you can provide those charts with governance with a broad view. If you are following an organizational framework expectation and that doesn't allow you to go into those areas, you have an impairment to your independence. But sure, if you want to circumvent or go outside or work around established entity-wide protocols or data governance architecture, then you need to have a really good decision that's well documented and rationale. What you would then do is you would apply for an ex- for an exemption from um, from the overall data governance framework. Absolutely, yep. Okay, so that was number two. So the third one is where you have highly sensitive data. So this is where all or most of the organization's data is classified as um, as highly sensitive, right? Now, all or most of, so this is, you know, it's got to be more than 75, 80% of the data is highly sensitive. And you're not going to find that in traditional sectors. So a singularly focused entity. So we're talking about maybe Uber ten years ago, right? So they, if they existed back then, but they would have they would have started off with ride sharing, and that's all that they that, that they cared about. So all of their data related to that. So they'd have some travel related data, they'd have some trip related data, they'd have some passenger related data. So it was very singularly focused. Whereas if you think about your your typical public sector organization or your typical banking organization, um, they would have a range of data, and so wouldn't fall into the sort of you know over fifty percent threshold. So that's the third one. The fourth one is where audit functions regularly provide consulting or advisory services, and there's a need to maintain Chinese walls. I'm really interested in this one because this is something we see coming up time and time again in in the public sector sphere in that audit offices around the world, I think it's fair to say, are 
being called on by their um, clients, which are public sector departments, to provide advice and insights. And it's how do you define that line between performing an audit function and providing something that's a, more of an advisory function? That's really interesting. Okay, so this is definitely a topic for an, for, for for a separate episode, and we'll 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 pick that up again. But we're not. What we're talking about here is more where individual members of the audit team have been involved in providing advisory services. So where, for example, a member of the internal audit team has been seconded to the business to help with um, control, control, um, or, or risk-related remediation activity. Okay, sorry, I misinterpreted that. But again, the risk needs to be clearly articulated here. So even if they were involved in something, that doesn't necessarily preclude them from seeing that data. You know, I, 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 there are there may be a few situations where this would be relevant, but we're talking about few and far between. So let's clearly articulate what that risk is. So presumably, somebody who has gone to the business to help implement some controls as a result of an audit can't then come in and a year later be involved in an audit team that may look at remediation of particular findings or well typically you want to avoid that the timelines vary so sometimes um, the business has moved so far from so far beyond that point within a year that that some functions will say a year is reasonable and you can actually go back and audit something that you've been involved in a year ago Um, maybe you just can't do it in the first 12 months and it also depends on what the level of i guess what the level of involvement that person had and whether there is any whether so they can't be involved in the audit yes but does that mean that they shouldn't be able to see the data that is relevant to that audit? I'm, I'm just not sure. I'd probably take a prudent approach there, personally, and wouldn't be that comfortable with somebody coming back into the team and auditing something with which they had previous exposure, even within a 12-month time frame. Even if they're not part of the audit team, do you need to prevent them from having access to the data that was used for that audit? So the situation is that John went off to particular business function. He comes back. A year later, an audit is being conducted of that particular function. He's excluded from the audit because he was involved directly. But does that mean that the data that's received, he can't actually see? So it might be beneficial for John, in your example, to see the data, but just not be a decision maker as to how, for example, that audit. That's the thinking. Okay. That's the thinking there. Another factor might be, so this is the fifth one, we have a very large audit team. And I was going to use a number, but I'm not. Come on, give me a benchmark. <laughs> so we're talking about, you know, where you have more than 80 to 100 FTE. So we're talking about large, a large team that will be potentially distributed uh, and where they wouldn't be working very closely together day to day as, a, as an entire team. So you're not going to have 100 people working closely together day to day. Again, this, is, this may be the smallest of these factors, but there's some situations in which larger teams opt to exert higher levels of control. And that's because they're not sure what is happening within some of the smaller teams and whether there are movements among those teams and other risks that need to be considered. But the thing to be careful with this is that it could just be that management practices are not as optimal as they could be um, and that these sorts of measures that have been that have been put in, so this sort of control that's been put in because the team is large is to overcome some of the suboptimal management practices that may exist. So not knowing what your team is doing. Okay, so that's pretty interesting. So are you saying that the bigger the team, the more control over data that potentially exists that should not exist? So, sorry, let me rephrase that. In your experience, is there restrictive practices in sharing data the larger the audit team? So in my experience, there's restrictive practices 
in even sharing information, the larger the audit team, and the risk that is usually expressed to back up that restriction, so back up the closing access versus opening access, is that we're not sure what people are going to do with this. We're not sure whether people should have access to this. And the and the question with that is, why are you not sure what your people are doing? So you, regardless of the size of your audit team, you should have the right distribution of management responsibility and accountability and information flow to know what your people are doing and to know what they might do with data to be able to articulate that risk clearly. Okay, so is that more of a management responsibility and having visibility and knowledge of what's going on within even bigger teams as opposed to overly restricting how they do their job? Yes, yes, absolutely. All right, and there may be, I guess there's, there's, there's three other considerations. So we're up to five. There's three other considerations that probably fall more, less organizational and more sort of audit team, individual audit focused. So where you have specific data that's sensitive, yes, you want to be able to open the access generally, but specifically segregate that access. And we spoke about that before. If there's a risk that data will be altered, so now we're on to number seven. If there's risk that data will be altered, if we think that the data that's coming in might be altered, but there again, we need to, we, we can actually lock down the individual source audit file. So were you talking there about direct access to systems where auditors have direct access to data systems? Is that what you're talking about? No, not quite. Because auditors generally won't have direct access. What I'm talking about there is, let's say we do 25 audits a year. If we execute one audit and maintain the audit file that has all of the source data that was used and then all of the analyzed data and the results, and if we then provide access to that audit file more broadly amongst the audit team, then there's a risk that either the source data or the results will be altered. And this could be by mistake or it could be intentionally by someone that, w- that wasn't involved in the audit directly. So the, the, the simple answer to that is that you shouldn't give access to make changes to anybody outside. Of, in fact, you, look, your audit, your audit file should really be locked down in the first place, right? So once your file, once your audit is, is complete, you should be locking it down. But let's say the audit is still live. And when an audit is live, you're not locking down all of these files yet. So the first thing is that you want to lock down your source data because nobody should be changing source data. There's no need to do that. So the data that you actually get in from the outside, you keep in a read-only form, even for the audit team that are involved. Then the second thing is that you can give read access to an audit file just to a member of a different audit team so that there's no risk that they're going to intentionally or unintentionally change that data. I know we're only in number seven of eight, I think it is, but... Would your view, Yusuf, be that there should be a custodian of the data that's obtained for a particular audit? Should there be an audit, a person in the audit team that's the custodian of that data that makes sure that it's not able to be um, manipulated by others? So I think that we could do that. Um, and if, if, it's a, if it's a smaller audit team or if the practices are not as consistent between audits. And, 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 and I'm not saying that in a, in a negative way. Quite often you have very dynamic, high-value audit teams where the audits themselves differ in the way in which they're conducted. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, it could be a good thing. If you're in a situation like that, you may want to have a custodian to look after that particular um, element. If your audits are structured more consistently, then you really want to have a process in place rather than an individual custodian. So if you say that this is what we're going to do, we have these five people that are involved in the audit, and this is when we have these five people involved in the audit, they have direct access to to the data to make changes, 
except for source data, of course, and anybody else is given read-only access, then you don't necessarily need to have a direct custodian. The manager involved or the team leader can determine whether a new person should get read access or, or not. And so should that decision be made on a audit by audit basis? or I think it's easier to make that decision more generally, so to put that in place more generally. And then if there are exceptions on an audit by audit basis, you can deal with those exceptions. Okay. Yep. All right. And then the eighth one is vulnerability. And this is this is a bit of a newer topic. It hasn't really come up before a lot uh, in my experience anyway. And so that's where if there's some, if there's heightened risk, security risk, cyber risk, call it what you like, because of the access to the data that the broader team has. So if there's knowledge that the broader team has access to data or if if giving access to more people means that you're spreading the risk of data being breached, then there might be a consideration. But there's other ways to mitigate that risk. There's other ways to put controls in place to mitigate that. And that is one of those is largely strengthening the identification, authentication and protection mechanisms of the, um, of the audit team's access. So the traditional posture would be Let's lock down this data set. It's only eyes only, the people or the person who is needs to do some analysis. But it sounds like, based on all everything we've discussed today, that that's not necessarily the most efficient or the best way to do it. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So what we're saying is that there's 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 there's, there's a number of reasons to restrict access, um, either broadly or generally, and we spoke about eight of them just there. I mean, obviously, this will be in the show notes, so we're not going to we're not going to repeat those uh, individual items. But yes, unless there's good reason to restrict access, that access should be kept open. Uh, we spoke last week about why we want to open access up, and what the cost of restricting access is. And this is yes, exactly what you said. Do you see any cultural shift from your observations in how? audit teams are treating that data in that are they making it more open across teams now have you got any observations to share on that so i don't know that there are many teams audit teams that are thinking about this purely because there are many audit teams that are not using data yet mm. i think the the default position is restrict but in conversations uh, more recently there are some shifts away from that i can't say that there's a, a theme more broadly what I can say is that conversations that we've had recently suggest that there's a shift away from closed access towards open access. So I am going to put you on the spot here. In conclusion, would you say there's more risk to the effectiveness and efficiency of internal audit and performance audit teams not sharing data than there is to sharing data? Absolutely. Are we doing this similar audits where we've already got information last year or the year before or six months ago that could inform what we're doing and cut down the audit time or audit resources substantially? We've got to start thinking about some of those things. That's a good idea. And we keep coming up with, with, with topics for future, future, future episodes. But um, So we'll, we're going to have to round it up there before you come up with another topic on it. But um, I guess in summary... Everything we've been talking about today is about taking a risk-based approach um, and not just not just putting controls in place because that's the, the easy way or because that's the, the way that we think is, is going to um, reduce risk. We always talk to management about taking risk-based approaches to the exercise of, uh, the exercise of business, you know, conducting business, and so we should really be drinking some of our own medicine there. Yeah. Um, it's been really good to get your insights, Yusuf. Thank you. Thanks, Colin. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please share with a friend and rate us in your podcast app. For immediate notification of new episodes, you can subscribe at assuranceshow.com. The link is in the show notes. Thank you.